Welcome to the New City Fellowship West End Sermon Podcast. We hope and pray this message equips, empowers, and encourages you. And now, today's sermon. And I'd invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 3, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, psych, try to mess with you, try to mess with myself, Ephesians chapter 4, and it'll also be um, on the screen and it'll be in your bulletin. Now just a heads up, uh, I won't be hitting all those passages, I was real optimistic, but as I began to time it out, then um, it turned out I could not get to everything, so that's all right. Somebody said amen, that it'll be a shorter uh, sermon. Um, But we're working through this series looking at urban apologetics, urban apologetics, and like, what does that mean? A couple weeks back, I joked that it it, it sounds like I walk around the hood talking about, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I'm sorry. It's not that, right? An apologetic is a defense for the hope that you have. Like, like you have a reasonable response if people are like, hey, what's this about Jesus? That you're ready to give a response about that. And we do that in an urban context, right? This is the west end of St. Louis. We're on the west side. And so urban apologetics is doing that right here in this place. Now, you might see or, or recognize that we're talking about community today. And community is absolutely vital to urban apologetics. Why? Because there's this growing sentiment, there's this growing view that uh, we're swimming in this narrative that if people are too hard, too challenging, too difficult, too uh, emotionally, uh, I struggle to work with them, maybe there's mental illness, maybe there's just too much sin, those people over there, I can't deal with them, and therefore, I have to remove myself from the situation, or I have to cut them off. And so this is growing and swirling in our relationships where it's like, no, I'm hitting the Heisman on you. You're, you're too toxic. You need to stay over there. I'm over here or I'm going to remove myself completely from the situation. You know, uh, in my own family, it, I have people who haven't talked to each other in years. Uh, we, we just, this is not therapy, okay, but, but just to communicate the idea we, we, my family just lost someone, uh, a great aunt, and one of my relatives had not spoken to her in 10 years. And when I asked, like, what was the beef? Like, what was the problem? She couldn't even remember. So in my own family, there's these separated situations where, where we don't even know what we're fighting about anymore, but we're uh, withdrawn from one another and don't dig into the relationship. The echo chamber of social media promotes these ideas, the echo chamber of news that just tell you what you want to hear all the time, promote these divisions where you're over there, you're bad, I'm right and good, and I either have to remove myself from being around you, or you have to get out and you're cut out. Now let's be real. This same problem is right in the church. It's right here in the church. And it hurts our witness. It it hurts our apologetic to the community around us. So often, church membership is not conversions. Conversions where somebody new comes to Christ and says, I want to be part of a body. I want to be part of this church. I want to become a member. So often, church membership is a lateral movement. It's a sideways movement where I didn't like the way things were going over there, so let me see what kind of suits my needs a little bit better, and then I'm going to to become a member over here. 
Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've seen churches split. I've seen churches that, that split, but they want to put a positive twist on it, so they call it a splant, right? So a church that was divided over something, couldn't get along about something, and said, you know what? We can't get along, so we're going to plant another church. And all those people that are about that, that thing over there that, that we don't mess with, that we don't want anything to do with, you guys, all you guys, you guys go and do that. We see it in denominational infighting, and we see that the way that we talk about other denominations. And so this, this idea that if you're over there, if you do things that way, I can't mess with you. I have to either cut you out because you're too toxic, or I have to remove myself, is not just in our relationships, in our family, in our workplace. It's in the church. We give up on other people, and we cut them off. But praise the Lord that Paul gives us wisdom on how to deal with this very issue. We come to Ephesians 4, and the first three chapters of Ephesians are all this grand theology about what God has done for his people, this wonderful work of Christ. And now, therefore, it hinges, it turns, and from now on, from 4, 5, and 6, it's how to live in spite of what Christ has done. And here we come to unity of the body. So if you're there, I'm going to read 1 through 6 and then 11 through 13. It says, I, therefore, that's that therefore I was talking about, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We'll jump down to 11. And he, that's God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And it goes on from there. Let's, uh, let's open our time together in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the community developer you instituted your church to be your body, to have unity, to flourish, to be a light to the nations. And Lord, we are a dim, smudged light that does not communicate that well. Teach us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to trust in you deeper, to know what it means to live as representatives of you. I pray that you would move me to the side, that you would move distractions, that the hearer could understand, not just in their head, but in their heart and in their hands, Lord Jesus, that, that what is spoken here wouldn't just stay in this room, in these seats, but your truth would pour out in the West End, in St. Louis, and beyond. We know that we can't do this without you, and so we beg of you, Holy Spirit, to do your work at this time now. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. And so we come to the urban apologetic of community. And I'm going to keep things real simple. Who likes it when it's simple? I like things simple, right? 
And so our big idea today is community. Come, get this, unity. All right? You got it? Community. Come, unity. Come, get this, unity. And therefore, because I'm keeping it simple, we just have two points. The first point is come, and the second point is unity. Listen, listen, if, if you don't get it, that's on you, all right? If you don't get this piece, if this doesn't sink in, I'm trying to make it plain, amen? All right, so our first point in come get this unity is come. And that's where, that's where Paul starts. Listen, it says in verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Everyone say walk. walk. Paul is making a point that when he says walk, you need to have some movement. You need to have some growth. You need to go somewhere. Something needs to happen. And you might think, oh man, everyone says life is a journey. You know, you have to walk this walk out, right? It's not the case because elsewhere, even in the next few verses, in the next chapter, Paul says, stand, stand firm, stand to this. And so here he's talking about walk, walk towards the caller, walk to the caller. Let's just be logical here. Let's just use our brains. If you were called with a calling, that means that there's a caller. Amen? There's someone who is calling you to something, to walk towards something. You know, I get down with the dog, right? I, I, I really like my dog. I talk about that a lot, probably too much. That's all right. I bind that in the name of Jesus. I'm just playing. Uh, one of the things that, that I, I am working with him now, he's about to be one, is just a great recall. When I say, Weston, come, he needs to come. And so we, we get out in the field, and I have treats and rewards and all that stuff. And I say, Weston, come. And I try to go further and further away to respond to my call of come. Once I call, he has a choice. Obey or disobey. Right? I uh, exploded earlier. Sorry. <laughs> There's, there's no illustration here. That's just, a, that's just an accident. When I call out to him, before he can be wandering around, he could be chasing a butterfly, he could be chewing on a ball, and, and that's fine. But as soon as I say, Weston, come, it's obey or disobey. And the same is true when God says, walk in the, the, the manner of the, let me read it, walk uh, in the word, hold up, hold up, hold up, sorry. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It takes a while, but I got it. And so you are called to something, and that means you have a choice. You obey or disobey. And so the question is, what are we called to? Look at verse 3. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word eager means zealously making every effort. Zealously making every effort. There's an urgency there. It's an emphatic word, and it's continuous, so that we need to be about this thing, about this unity of the Spirit. But hold on, I, I want to point something out. We're eager not to start something, not to, not to conjure something up, not to make something happen. We're eager to maintain we're eager to maintain what God is already doing. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What that means is that the Spirit of the living God is already at work in unity. And He's calling you to obey and get on board with what He's already about. Amen? Amen. 
And so there is a caller who's telling you to come get this unity. How do we do this? Well, we come to the called. So not only to the caller, but we come to the called. Look at verse 2. It says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so this is the calling that we've been called to, unity in this way. And so what Paul is communicating to us through the power of the Holy Spirit is how to come correct. This is how you come correct. There is a five-fold pillar of relationship uh, words here. We have humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, or forbearance. And we do that in love. Listen. Every single one of these words needs an object for it to happen. You can't do those things alone. You need to exercise those things in community with other people. And what Paul is communicating is that the church is the place for grace-filled community with this five-pillar relationship attributes. Listen, have you ever tried to have humility by yourself? You're at home having a bagel. Talk about... Would you like to spread the bagel? No, you go ahead and spread the cream cheese on the bagel. No, you go, you go. You can't can't do these things by yourself. Have you had gentleness by yourself? What does that even look like? I'm being gentle with myself. It, It doesn't make sense. And what Paul is communicating is that there has to be an object. There has to be a person. There has to be a recipient. There has to be a community where you practice and grow in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, in love. You have, a, have to have a place. And if you have a place, you should be getting better at this. Are you better at patience than you were last year? Are you better at gentleness than you were three years ago? Are you better at bearing with one another more so than you were five years ago? The walk, the call, the come means that you should be developing these characteristics and the church is the place to to fail forward, to do it wrong with each other in a grace-filled community. Are you getting better at this? I hope so. I hope so. Now we need to stop for a minute. We need to pause right here for just a moment. Because if you're being called into unity with other believers, sometimes this is misused. Sometimes, in the African-American community, a word like unity is a mask for uniformity. We're calling you to be part of something, but as soon as you agree and are part of this thing, then I flip the script on you and I say, no, I want you to assimilate to the way that I do things. And if you're not doing things my way, then you therefore are breaking the unity and it's your fault. And so what this means for us is, Asking the question, what kind of unity are you inviting me into? Is it a deep, realistic unity? Listen, this is hard. This is tough stuff. There are people who would harass you. There are people who will mistreat you. There are people who would spiritually abuse you. There are those who would call out the dignity and call into question the dignity of you as an image bearer. Am I to be united with someone like this? If someone is coming for me, attacking me, am I called to this type of unity? And so we have to ask the question, what kind of unity am I being called to? And it's a good thing you asked that question, because that's our second point. So first, we come get this unity. 
And second, we come get this unity, but we focus on the unity of We're united in both doctrine, but we're also united in diversity. We're united in doctrine, but also diversity. Listen, when, when you think of the word doctrine, do you have good thoughts that come to mind? All you Bible scholars are like, yes, yes and amen. I absolutely, I think doctrine is excellent. Listen, so often with young people and in the community around us, doctrine is a bad word. Dogma is a bad word. Words like religion are, 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 are oppressive and restrictive. But, but here, this actually communicates an idea that clarifies, it protects, and it guards against evil within the church. Where do I see a united doctrine? Look at verse 4 through 6. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's, what's, what's the common word? One, right? One. One. Let, let's break something down for just a second. There are many people who believe that the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that God is one and three, started around 325 A.D. That at a council of Nicaea that they decided, oh, this is how God is, he's one and three. This was written to a church probably about 60, around, around 60 A.D., maybe a little bit after. Jesus' ascension is probably around 30 A.D. And what almost every scholar agrees upon, biblical scholars agree, that when he says this one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism, he's quoting what they would sing as orthodoxy, what they would sing as doctrine, what they would sing as the right and true doctrine of Jesus Christ. And so what that means is if Paul is quoting a hymn that they would pass amongst themselves about what is true and what is right and what is good, then it's been around for a while. It's already been there. And what do you see? The God that they worship is one and three. It says in verse four, one spirit, right? The Holy Spirit one Lord, right? The Lord Jesus Christ, one God and Father of all. So the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one, one, one as three. And, and so this is not what this sermon is primarily about. But the point is that there's already doctrine, there's already orthodoxy, there's already a view that's being dismissed, uh, 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 dispersed throughout the churches of what is right and good and true. There's another in Philippians 2, where all the scholars are like, Paul didn't write that, Paul didn't write that, that was somebody else. Paul is quoting what they have in terms of their catechism and a hymn of what doctrine is right and true. And so, they're united in doctrine. They believe in the God that they worship is one God in three persons, but they also believe and hold true to the doctrine of one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. One body. What does that mean? That means that I belong to Christ, and if you belong to Christ, we belong to each other. One body. We're united as one. One hope. My only hope in life and death is that I'm not my own, but I was bought by the blood of Christ. One hope. Not two hopes. Not a backup plan if this Christianity thing doesn't work out. One hope. 
one faith and nothing else except Jesus Christ. And all these one one are demonstrated in one baptism, a proclamation of what I believe about this, these doctrines. Now let me ask you, we have one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one worship style. One evangelical method, one philosophy of ministry, one way to dress, one measure of productivity. No, no, absolutely not. You see, what the doctrine does, it unifies us and frees us to know what we need to have a problem about and what we need to get together versus what are tertiary issues, secondary tertiary issues, issues that aren't at the forefront. Um, can, can I get real, real practical for a second? Just real practical. The unity of doctrine, it's not to beat you down. It actually frees you. Doctrinal unity actually frees you. And, and let me break it down. Here we go. If I have a problem with other people, or let's do, the, let's do you. If you have a problem with other people, you get to run it through the doctrine test if it's right and true and worthy of bringing up with your brother and sister in Christ. What do I mean? Some of us break unity in the church because of our ego, because of our agenda, because we always have a problem about this, this, or this, and we make this thing about us. And so what you, your responsibility, if you are one of those folks that always has a problem, is to run it through the doctrine test and say, is this worthy of dealing with or not? Amen? Everyone getting quiet on me now, talking about, uh-oh, he's coming for me. He's coming for me. It happens the other way, too. Some of us break unity because when things that are doctrinal matters come into what we believe and hold is true, and if we don't shut those things out and defend against them to define what doctrine is right and good, then those things infiltrate and break unity as well. And so it goes both ways as you think about the problems that you have with other people. What about the problems that people have with you? What about the issues that people bring up to you? Some of us are crushed by criticism. Crushed by criticism. If somebody says something to you, you think about it, you work it out, you're frustrated, you're sad, you're angry, that's a toxic person that I need to get out of my life. If somebody criticizes me, I'm a wreck. Put it through the test, right? Listen to the criticism with love and, and with patience, all these things, uh, uh, bearing with one another. I'm going to listen to it. But if it's not a doctrinal issue, if it's not one of these major pieces, I can put you to the side. I don't have to be broken by criticism if it's not one of these main core concerns of Christian community. Does that make sense? Goes the other way. Some of you all are completely unbothered by criticism. Somebody comes at you and, nope, I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about it. If you're unbothered by criticism and you don't hear what anyone has to say, what you need to do is take those criticisms through this doctrine test. And then you get to hear if there's some validity and you can come back, you're freed to come back to your brother and sister and say, bro, I was wrong. I was out of pocket. Thank you for helping me get this right. Amen? So 
the unity that we have in doctrine actually frees us to be the body because I'm not all bent out of shape if somebody comes at me or I'm not completely ignoring my brother or sister if they ha- actually have something valid from the gospel to say to me. So united in doctrine frees us and it also frees us to celebrate diversity. So it's not just unity in doctrine, united in doctrine. We're also united in diversity. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, and he, that's God, gave. Everyone say gave. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. If God gives you a gift, you better receive that gift. You hear me? God gives. If God gives you something... Listen, you don't have to be afraid of somebody else's gift because God has given it. You don't have to be skeptical of the way that somebody else lives their life or the way that somebody else conducts their worship. You don't have to be afraid of those things because God gave it and God gives good gifts to his children. Amen? And that gift that he gives has a purpose. Look at verse 12. To equip the saints, all those those gifts, all those different uh, roles, to equip the saints... For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. How's your strength? How's your spiritual strength? Listen, if you're if you're constantly uh, quaking, constantly faltering, constantly struggling, it's because you need more of the body in your life. You need other people speaking to you, sharing their gifts, sharing their perspective to help build you up. You need other people to support you, to challenge you. And what happens, that verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What happens, you become mature. You will grow up into Christ. You will grow, that word mature, is, um, is the Greek teleos, which means end goal. It means that the relationships that we have as the body of Christ have a direction. They have an end goal. They're going somewhere to be built up into Christ himself. Listen, in verse 12, it says to equip the saints. Very rarely do we get a point as strong as the word saints here. That, that word means holy ones, the holy ones of God. How many times do you think in the New Testament, saints is singular? How many times is saints singular in the New Testament? Zero. Zero. Nil. Nothing. Cheerio, right? Nada. What that means is if you want to become built up in the holiness of Christ, you need community in order for that to happen. You cannot, cannot know God by yourself. If you're going to be one of the saints, if you're going to be part of the community of the holy ones of God, then it requires community. There are no individual saints. It's no, not a solo mission. And so we pursue and celebrate diversity because it's Christ's way to make you more like him. Listen, how is it that we are built up by the diversity of Christ? In this passage, 
It says that Christ is the head and we are the body. Do you think that I understand what it means to be the head versus the body to the degree that Moise Ushe, who is a neurologist, understands that? Do you think he might be able to share a little bit perspective, a perspective on what Paul means when he calls Christ the head and us the body? Do you think he might be able to help me out with that? Listen, <laughs> don't worry, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Listen, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and elsewhere, the Bible calls God the potter and us the clay. Do you think that Heather Henning, who is a potter, potter you do pottery, you're a potter, do you think she might have some insights about what that means for us today in, in living that out? Listen, later in this passage, it talks about putting on the full armor of God. Do you think we might have something to learn from a veteran who has put on armor or someone who is going to go through basic training like Kamari? Do you think we might learn something from putting on armor from someone who has actually done it? When the Bible in Ephesians 2 says that you are God's workmanship, that you are God's masterpiece, his work of art, do you think, do you just think that maybe if Jennifer Fancher, who is an art teacher, or Josh Williams, who is an accomplished artist, were to explain what that means from their perspective, you and I might be able to get some insights. We are built up into the understanding of who Christ is and what he communicates to us through the body. Amen? Now let's not stop there. Let's not stop there. Paul says, I am a prisoner. I urge you as a prisoner. Do you think that we might learn something from those who are incarcerated? When Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, he's declaring that he is homeless. Do you think that we might, might, might just have something to learn from those who are unhoused? When Jesus says, please hand me a denarius because I want to give an illustration about money, he's declaring that I don't have a dollar to my name. Don't you realize that we have something to learn from those who are flat broke? We cannot understand the fullness of Jesus Christ unless we incorporate the whole body. Amen? Listen, we have to flip our understanding of what's valuable and what's not valuable on its head because we need community in order to understand who Jesus Christ is. Listen, listen, I'll be the first to admit it. This stuff is hard. It is tough to enter into hard situations. It's difficult to be with people who are coming at you and coming for you. Sometimes we feel guilty as we're the people who are doing those very things. And the reality is, if Jesus looked at me in terms of when he calls me to obedience, if Jesus looked at my record in terms of my ability to do unity well with humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, if Jesus looked at me about my doctrinal standards and how well I carry these things out, if Jesus looked at me and and looked at how I celebrate diversity, Maybe you'd be just like me, standing condemned, standing guilty before a just and holy God, unable to enter into His presence. But do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ, 
lived out perfectly what he requires of you. Listen, just think about it for a moment. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the call of God in every way. He obeyed God in every way. God calls him to do these things and he says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is always gentle, always humble, always patient, bearing with one another in love. Jesus, the Bible calls him the living word. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That means Jesus is doctrine embodied on your behalf. Jesus is the path to diversity. Fully God, fully man in one person. And do you understand that flesh, you and me, through Jesus Christ, enters into community, into into communing with the living God. Apart from Jesus being fully God and fully man, we have no access to God. But in what he's done, punishing our sins on the cross, we have full access to the living God. So what this means is that we don't have to stand condemned. What it means is that we can be in community, that we can come in unity because he came in unity on our behalf. So trust in him and come and get this unity. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening and God bless.